if you want, or if you will, please open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 11. And in this chapter of Scripture, we are going to see that God is a fixer-upper God. We're in this series of Renovate, and yes, God was doing this well before Chip and Joanna Gaines. You know, they're great. They do a good job with spaces. She's inspirational and creative, but I got to say, they've got nothing on God. You see, in the scriptures, God enters into the human condition in our hopelessness, in our helplessness. Now, we have to be willing to receive his work. God's not going to enter in our lives and renovate our lives if we say to ourselves, well, I don't really need God to fix me. I'm fine. I'm all set. You see, when we do that, we've become this little squatter king of our own little squatter kingdom, and God's got to wait for that king to get kicked out because he doesn't rule very well. But when he comes in, and when we allow him to come in, his grace is operative. No one fixes a broken human heart like God does. In fact, we can say he's best in class. As we pick up in Isaiah chapter 11, it's interesting. We don't know the time of when this prophecy was proclaimed, but reading between the lines, I sense that it may be during the Hezekiah rule. This is a desperate time in Israel's history. Sometimes we miss how desperate it is because we focus in on Isaiah chapter 36 and 37 when God miraculously intervenes on behalf of Israel. But Assyria and their king, Sennacherib, they've been choking Judah for quite some time. If we can believe his propaganda, he suggests that they have taken 46 towns and over 200,000 Judeans captive. I mean, the Davidic monarchy at this stage has been reduced to a stump. And it's in the midst of this time of desperation that Isaiah writes one of the most beautiful prophecies of Jesus in all the Bible. So let's take a look at it. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. We pick up at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain, 
For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall be, not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt." So once again, let's acknowledge that prophecy is one of the more difficult genres to understand in the Bible. But I think as you look at the structure of this passage, it will make it a little more simple to understand what Isaiah is saying. This chapter is comprised of two main poems. The first poem is about the king's credentials. That's verses 1 through 10. The second poem is about the king's watch care. That's verses 11 through 16. And what does this structure tell us? Well, it tells us a lot. You see, Isaiah is giving us a picture of the future. And he doesn't want us to walk away from this chapter so much thinking and consuming our thoughts with the when as much as with the who. In other words, he doesn't want you to get focused on the details of when all of these things are going to take place as much as he wants you to be enamored with Jesus. So we pick up in verse 1, and we see this incredible image of a stump king coming out of a stump kingdom. He's called the shoot of Jesse. And when you think about a stump, what do you think of? I kind of think of desolation, of loss. In fact, it kind of brings back some bad memories of my own backyard when I think about a stump. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to tell you both sides of the story. I'll tell you my perspective, and then I'll tell you my wife's perspective. Now, my perspective is that one day I left for work, and there was a tree in our front lawn that it needed to be dealt with. It was dangerous, so we called in a tree service company. The tree service arrives, and I said, Katie, we just need one tree removed, this guy tells her we need several trees removed. Now, here's the thing you've got to learn about Katie. She worships the sun. 
She wants to be able to move her hammock all throughout the backyard, wherever her whim should take her. And she doesn't even want like the square footage of the size of a leaf of shade to touch her body. She needs to drink in all of the sunlight. So when he says, we can remove some trees, she tells him to destroy them all. I come home, there is at least 100, if not 200 trees that have been felled. I still wake up with nightmares and cold sweats of the carnage that I witnessed when I came home. Now, her side of the story is a little different. She would suggest that the number of trees has grown slightly over the years. In fact, she would go so far as to suggest that there may not be enough trees on Cape Cod to keep up with my exaggerations given time. You decide who you're going to believe. <laughs> when you look at the desolation of a clearing of a forest, it looks defunct, doesn't it? And what God's telling us in this scripture is that when he does this great work of this stump king coming on the scene, Israel is going to look powerless and pathetic. There is another theme in scripture for you. When God does his greatest works, it always seems to be done from a position of weakness, or at least from our perspective. He loves to show his power by operating at times when everything seems leveled. Think about the stories of the Bible. When does he call his people into the promised land to take the promised land? Well, when they are a slave nation. Or you think about Israel's greatest king, David. You look at the story of his great-great-grandmother, Ruth. She comes on the scene as a suspect foreigner, a Moabite, coming to Bethlehem. And she ends up being the great-great-grandmother of the greatest king in Israel's history, or David himself. <laughs> now here you have this forgotten, ruddy shepherd boy. And God calls him, and he anoints him, and he becomes the king that Israel always needed. See, God is mysterious and miraculous in the way that he works in the world. I, I love the image of the stump because the stump points to desolation, but it also has prospects for hope. Stumps have the capacity for new life in them. So Isaiah gives us this picture of this stump king rising out of this stump, and there's a bit of a conundrum with this king. If you look at verse 1, we're told that he's the shoot of Jesse. And then you look at verse 10, and we're told that he's the root of Jesse. Think about that for a minute. How can the same person be the shoot of the stump and the root of the stump. In other words, he's the seed of Jesse, but also the source of Jesse. Now, it shouldn't surprise us if we've been following along in Isaiah, because remember what Isaiah's told us so far about Jesus. In chapter 6, he tells us that Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel. Remember? God with us. And then chapter 9, as they're describing the names of Jesus, he is called mighty God. So we don't have to wait till the New Testament to discern that Jesus is both God and man. Incredible. Focus on the who. Judah needs to focus on the who in the midst of their time of desperation. 
They need a prophecy of a king that they can trust, a king that will lead them through their most difficult situations, and that remains true of you and me today. The message is always the same. As the people of God, we need to learn that this life is about learning to trust Jesus. You're only beginning to understand trust when you begin to realize that you must trust Jesus more than you trust yourself. Now, Isaiah in this passage, he doesn't just tell us that. He doesn't want you to just go out on a limb with nothing to hang upon. No, he tells us three powerful reasons why we can trust Jesus. He begins with this idea of competence. He shows us in verses 2 through 5 that Jesus is the most competent leader in human history. These verses are Isaiah's way of building out Jesus' LinkedIn profile. This is his resume. You know, when you're looking for a leader of a great organization, that you're really looking for competence that has been proven in real-world experience. And so Isaiah, as he builds this LinkedIn account, he uses the conjunction and a lot. He's telling us all things, all kinds of things about Jesus. This has the effect of piling up, and he's like this, and he can do this, and he will do these kinds of things. Now, we don't tend to do this in English because that sounds really repetitive to the English ear. But look, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And I've added the ends that the SV took out, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, and decide disputes, and decide with equity, and he shall strike the earth, and righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And, 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 you got it? Jesus is uniquely qualified, according to this passage. If you look at the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, the first you know, description of that, the spirit of wisdom and understanding helps us to see that he always makes the right plans. And then we come to see the spirit of counsel and might, meaning he always executes upon the right plans. And then finally, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, there's a deep reverence and love for the Lord that will guide him as he leads. You see, the description that Isaiah is giving us here is of a righteous leader who will bring about unparalleled fairness and impartiality in this world. You know this because in verse 4, for example, we're told that with righteousness he shall judge the poor. Now ask yourself the question, why does it matter that the helpless and afflicted receive their rights? Well, one commentator says this, if they get their rights, everyone else surely will get their rights too. If you look at biblical justice, the, the litmus test, if you will, for biblical righteous leadership is that the leader sees the forgotten. And if the leader can see the lowliest in society, then that leader can see the whole of society. And that's the Jesus that we see in this passage. Now you have to ask yourself another question. Why do I need to hear about Jesus' resume? 
Well, it turns out that all of us as people in our human nature, we won't follow a leader if we don't respect them. If we don't view a leader as competent, if we look at their decision-making and we say to ourselves, oh, I think I could have made a better decision than that, there's some kind of deficiency in them, then we're not going to wholly entrust ourselves to their leadership. So Isaiah is challenging us this morning, and he's asking us a big question. Do you really believe that Jesus is competent in all ways? So like when he speaks about things such as possessions or family or how you should structure your life, uh, how you shouldn't worry in life, any of those things that Jesus talks about, do you believe that he's the foremost expert on that subject? I was reading a book by Dallas Willard. I'm going to probably share a lot of Dallas Willard. I'm kind of on a Dallas Willard kick right now in my personal study and he was telling this story about gathering a, a Christian faculty together from a Christian college. And he's leading them in a retreat, and he says, I want you to imagine that Jesus is leading our retreat right now. What do you think he would say to us? And then he says, I think Jesus would ask this question. Why don't you respect me in your various fields of study and expertise why don't you recognize me as master of research and knowledge in your field? So here he is getting right to the heart of whether or not they perceive him to be competent. And it was a mixed reaction. But most of the Christian faculty in this setting said they'd never even thought about that before. Is Jesus the master of my field of research? Oh, I don't know. I'm a physicist. Why would I think about that? Now, he's tapping into something here. In our culture, even among Christians, Jesus is automatically disassociated from brilliance or intellectual capacity. And here's why I'd say that, because not one in a thousand will spontaneously think of him as brilliant, well-informed, or smart. We think about other qualities of Jesus, but we don't tend to go there. So listen to Willard here. He says, can we seriously imagine that Jesus could be Lord if he were not smart? If he were divine, would he be dumb or uninformed? Once you stop and think about it, how could he be what Christians take him to be in other respects and not be the best informed and most intelligent person of all? the smartest person who ever lived, bringing us the best information on the most important subjects. Do you, when you're experiencing a problem in your life, go to Jesus first or some other source first? Why are we running to the other source? We're running there because we believe that that's more competent. But the early Christians didn't think of him this way. In Colossians 2, 3, Paul says that he's the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How do you think that informed the way that they trusted him, followed him, lived for him? It changes everything. Now, Isaiah moves beyond competence to show us a picture of what this competent administrator, leader, 
will bring into the world. It's nothing short of real peace. That imagery in verses 6 through 9 is just so captivating and powerful. You think of this wolf dwelling with a lamb, a leopard with a goat, but most striking of all, living in a world where the children can go out into the neighborhood and play, and there is no fear for their safety. Some of you remember a world that was kind of like that, right? Decades ago. Kids running all throughout the neighborhood, getting into trouble, maybe even starting fires in their neighbor's backyard. I don't know who would have done that. (laughs) But we need to get back to a world like that. Maybe not the fires. (laughs) It's a picture here of biblical shalom. Remember, we talked about this in Isaiah 9. Shalom is real peace. This is peace in every sphere of life. Inner peace. Relational peace. Global peace. It's a comprehensive peace that is felt wherever you go, internally, externally. It's a peace that we all long for and need. I believe that the picture that he's creating for us here is a picture of the millennial rule of Christ. If you know your eschatological timeline, this is what is described in Revelation chapter 20. A thousand-year period of Christ ruling physically on the earth out of Jerusalem as the benevolent king of the earth. Think of it like this. It's the, the ultimate golden era in human history. That's what the Bible promises. And not only is he going to fix all the things that we've messed up, like issues of poverty and hunger and illiteracy and all of those things that we've created as humans, but he's also going to create a joyful atmosphere that intensifies the things that we already love. Like even mundane mundane things like Super Bowls. And I have it on good word that... uh, In the millennium, the Patriots shall win 1,000 Super Bowls consecutive. (laughs) But also things like business and culture and art and language and monopoly on Friday nights with kids. Everything that we know and love about this world will be intensified in that world. Here's another thing about biblical peace. You don't have to wait for that world to start getting a sample of it. You know, every Sunday when this church gathers together, God is distributing little spoon samples, little tastes of eternity to the body of Christ because we're gathered here, a bunch of people from different backgrounds, different life histories who have no business being together except for the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this taste of eternity has been a part of the church's experience for thousands of years. When, when, Christ, or when Paul's writing um, the book of Ephesians, for example, he says, Christ is our peace. And then he talks about God breaking down this dividing wall of hostility. Now, this dividing wall of hostility was about an ancient hatred. Uh, you think that wolves and lambs don't like being together? Jews and Gentiles, everyone thought, had no business congregating in the same space. Well, Christ fixed that. He's done that in 
a multitude of ways throughout history. I was just reading of a missionary context, 19th century New Zealand. The gospel had really penetrated certain tribal groups in this area. And two chiefs who have come to know Christ are approaching the communion table together. And one of the chiefs, as he's taking the elements, was trembling all over, up and down. Someone approached him after communion, and they said, what was going on? Why were you so deeply emotional? And he said, well, I was at the communion table with another chief who killed and ate my father years ago. And he said, apart from the power of the gospel and the new life that Christ has brought into my world, I never would have eaten the same bread or drank from the same cup as the person who killed my father. You see, if you will let the Spirit of Christ work in you, he can break down any kind of barrier that's separating us from other people if we have the Spirit of God together. It will whet your appetite for the full measure of peace that he intends to bring. So we're talking about his competence, and we're talking about the leadership that it will bring, but we also need to see the personal side of his leadership, the watch care. It's incredible, this aspect of Jesus' leadership is so significant that for Isaiah, it merits its own poem. If you look at verse 11, he emphasizes the worldwide regathering of Israel. You see all these different nations described there. Now, you have to envision the world through their eyes. Just like when we look at our map, we're kind of at the center of the world and everything moves out from there. This is the same case with them. So Cush is the far south, and Elam is the far east, and Assyria is the far north, and then you have those outer islands, and that's the far west from their vantage point. And what Isaiah wants us to see from this world map is that Jesus is the ruler who knows where his people are. He never loses one of them. Even if they're scattered to the four corners of the earth, he has the ability to bring them back together again. Now think about your recent history. What happened? We know in the late 19th century that there was a trickle of people starting to come back to the land to reconstitute a nation. And in post-World War II, it was like a flood. And all of a sudden, we had this new nation, Israel, brought back into existence. The incredible thing was, when all of this was happening, Christians were surprised. They shouldn't have been. After all, Paul said in Romans 9 through 11, he said that God wasn't finished with his people. And here's the thing about God. When God makes a promise, he never breaks his promises. And the same God who made promises to them is the same God who makes promises to us. Look at the characteristics of Jesus in this passage. His watch care, his gentleness. He's the king who never loses one of his own. It's a beautiful poem. He's bringing the people back. It's a great homecoming. He's removing obstacles. He's even like 
terraforming rivers so that these people can walk across them with their sandals. He's the kind of king that no matter how far away you've been for how long you've been away, he's always saying, come home, return to me. I want you to be near. I want to lead your life and I want to love you. And I want you to be everything that you can be if you would just follow me. It makes me think of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for my sheep. Talk about removing every obstacle. This king willingly went to the cross and shed his blood so that you might find your way back to God. He will go to the greatest lengths so that you come home. And he tells us in the next verses that he never loses one of his own. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Wow. I was reading of Arthur Gossip, Dr. Gossip. He wrote a sermon. The name of the sermon was, But When Life Tumbles In, What Then? And he preached this message not long after the sudden death of his wife. As he stood up to deliver the message, he said, I don't believe anyone will care to challenge me this morning on what I'm about to say. And he went on to preach a message of deep abiding trust in the Christian faith and what it's meant to him, especially in the midst of this difficult time in his life. He alludes to a horrid murder that took place in this sermon. It was during the killing time in Scotland's history. The English monarchy was coming down strongly on the Scottish covenanters. It was a form of Presbyterianism that they held to in Scotland. And they wanted to kind of stamp that out. There was over 100 executions that took place. One of the executions involved Isabel Brown's husband, John Brown. You see, John Brown was murdered in front of his cottage by a man named Claverhouse, a brutal man. He blew his brains out. He looked over at Isabel Brown and he said, what do you think of your husband now? And her response was awe-inspiring. She said, I always thought greatly of him, but I think more of him now. Dr. Gossip, drawing on the strength of those words, said, you know, I've always thought greatly of the Christian faith, but I think more of it now, far more. You see, what is authentic about this faith, genuine and real about this faith, is not that it's a good faith for when times are going good in your life, but it's the kind of faith that meets you in the deepest despair of your life and will carry you through the midst of that. We worship a God who walks with us. 
And I believe that that is the response that Isaiah is seeking to draw out of us. Not so much about the Christian faith as about Christ himself. He is the who that you can trust. Why can I trust him? Because he's competent. Because he can bring real peace into this world. He can start bringing the peace into your life now. And because he is the king who never loses his own, not even one. Isaiah 11 is meant to produce that response into you. I thought greatly of Christ before. But now, I think more of him. Far more. Let's pray. Lord, today I resonate with the desperate cry in the gospel, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes I think I operate my life out of more doubt than faith, and yet I want to believe. I do believe. I am a complex creature. At times, I can believe with my head while my body is still locked into patterns of skepticism and doubt. Faith is not yet in my muscles, my bones, my glands. Increase faith in me, O Lord. I'm sure that for faith to grow, you will put me in situations where I'll need resources beyond myself. I submit to the process. Will this mean moving out on behalf of others? Praying for them and trusting you to work in them? If so, then show me the who, what, when, and where, and I will seek to act at your bidding. I am trusting you to take me from faith to faith, from the faith that I do have to the faith that I am in the process of receiving. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen.